Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, and welcome to Radio Motherboard. My name is Jason Kebler, and this week we have an awesome episode about the fight for the right to repair. But before we get into the episode, I want to tell you some housekeeping and some exciting news. Motherboard is launching its second ever podcast. It's called Plus Plus Podcast, and we'll have a preview for you at the end of this episode. If you don't even need to hear a preview and are just excited already, you can check it out on iTunes and all podcast apps. It's Plus Plus Podcast spelled out and all one word. I don't know why we decided to do that because I realize now it's hard to search for, but hopefully you can find it. Plus Plus Podcast is a show that's much more produced than Radio Motherboard. It takes you on the road with Motherboard reporters. Our first episode is about a Canadian hacker who was killed by the police, and that'll come out tomorrow. We also have coming up an episode about smart guns, automation in Indian factories, another episode about the right to repair that takes you a little bit on a more of a narrative journey, and an episode where I go to an electronics recycling center in Texas. So we're all over the place. On this week's episode of Radio Motherboard, I have Kyle Weens, who is the CEO of iFixit. He's been with us before, but if you're not familiar, his company teaches people how to fix game consoles, phones, vacuum cleaners, all sorts of old electronics and new electronics too. And I also have Gay Gordon Byrne, who is the executive director of Repair.org. Together, Kyle Gay and a host of other activists, I guess you'd call them, are lobbying for the right to repair, which we'll learn more about. It's one of my favorite topics. I write about it all the time. If you read Motherboard, you've probably seen me write about it. But we're going to talk about the issue, the lobbying effort on their end, and the counter-lobbying effort by companies like Apple, IBM, Nintendo, all the big people who are trying to kill this. So here is Gay and Kyle. Thank you guys both so much for being here. And I've been seeing a lot of you guys lately at various conferences and lobbying events and stuff like that. How do you guys first bring up the right to repair to someone who has no idea what we're talking about? What is the right to repair? The first way that we've ever explained it is like cars. If you want to fix your own car or take it to a local mechanic, everybody understands that that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. And then I said, well, it's the same thing for cell phones. And everybody that's ever had a broken piece of cell phone glass understands that very well and personally as well. And then we say, but it's the same thing. It's the same thing if it's a cell phone or a refrigerator or a car or a tractor. And that usually gets the conversation going. From going to these conferences, 
I feel like the media and me, like I always talk about Apple and smartphones, and I think Kyle talks a lot about smartphones as well, in addition to these other things. But this is a fight that's been going on for a really long time. There was no auto rights repair until 2012 when Massachusetts passed a bill. What did that bill do? And also, it seems like this is a fight that's been going on for a lot longer with things like appliances and servers and, and stuff like that. So what have manufacturers done to prevent you from repairing your things and what was the 2012 legislation? Right. This is a fight that is kind of, I think, inevitable. There's going to be a tension between the owners of products and the manufacturers. The way that society and marketing works now is you make a product and then you turn around and you want to sell another one as soon as possible. So the manufacturers are always going to be incentivized to, to make and sell us as many new products as possible. So what happens is manufacturers start out making a product and then uh, it's a good product. People want to use it longer and people People start fixing it, and maybe if it's a big enough business, you get local repair shops that start up doing repairs for cars or for laptops, whatever it is. And then the manufacturer realizes that there's a lot of money to be made in repair as well, and so they start getting into the repair business and competing. And then they start saying, well, how do we get a bigger market share? Maybe the manufacturer's only got 50% market share and they want more. And they realize that there are a lot of legal tools that they can do to cut out the third-party service guys. So this has been happening in the car repair world for a while. And back in 2000, all of the independent auto repair shops got together and said, hey, this is really a problem. We're having a hard time getting parts. They're putting proprietary computers in these cars with diagnostic interfaces that we don't have access to anymore. We have to do something. And so they went to Congress and they said, hey, Congress, will you please pass a right to repair law uh, to protect us to make sure that people can continue to get their car fixed at a local uh, repair shop. And then the big car companies showed up in D.C. as well, Ford and GM and the Auto Alliance, which is the global group of auto manufacturers, and they killed the bill. So then you know, they tried again and again, and, and the auto manufacturers were really good at stopping these national right-to-repair bills. The local car mechanics decided, well, let's just do it in the local states where we already have good relationships with our legislators. And they tried it in a few different states, and finally in 2012 in Massachusetts, they got a bill passed and they won. Right. So this is something that has come up with the advent of software locks on repair. So I know that if you have a John Deere tractor, you can't repair it unless you have the John Deere software that activates, say, a part or allows you to authorize a part that goes into it. If you have a refrigerator, like maybe a GE refrigerator, you can't replace a filter in there unless you have a software unlock code that is only given out to authorized repair people. Why should manufacturers be prevented from doing this sort of software-type lockdowns? It's really impressive how successful they've been at locking people out. Farmers really struggle. I mean, I have have a friend who's a farmer, and he had a forklift, a skid steer, that the engine would turn on, but the hydraulics wouldn't work. And he was just getting a code, so just a numeric error code. And he called up Caterpillar and said, hey, what does this code mean? And they wouldn't tell him. Uh, They said you have to have a local technician come out. So he pays the technician to drive, has to pay him $100 an hour to drive an hour to his farm, plug in his diagnostic computer, and he says, oh, the battery voltage is low. And then he says, but I can't go down to the local AutoZone and get one. I have to go back and get a Caterpillar brand battery. So he had to drive back to his shop, get a Caterpillar brand battery, drive back, put it in. Ended up being a $600 repair ticket. I wrote a big story about iFixit 
two years ago, I guess now, I went down to the e-reuse conference in New Orleans at the time and met with all your people and talked to you about your mission of encouraging repair and enabling repair for both environmental reasons and for property ownership reasons and all these sorts of interesting reasons to have repair. iFixit is now a pretty successful company. You guys sell parts and you tell people how to fix things. And I ended that story by sort of saying that by doing all this repair.org and right to repair stuff, you are essentially trying to make your company obsolete. (laughs) Do you agree with that statement that I said? Like you're basically pushing to have Apple give out the information that you have on your website and are pushing to have Apple sell parts that you guys sell. It's very possible. I mean, everything that we've been doing from the beginning of iFixit has been, hey, the manufacturer repair information isn't available, so let's go and write our own so that there's at least an option. So if all of a sudden they were making their information available, it certainly would make it less necessary for us to be reverse engineering everything. On the other hand, there's always a need to make this stuff easier. And one thing that I found that's really fascinating about repair is that you never stop learning. When we wrote the iPhone 5 repair manual, we had one approach to getting inside. And then over the years and hundreds of thousands of people using it, we learned a lot and we've rewritten the manual several times. Right. So I think there's a possibility of putting our traditional business kind of out of the way. And but but I think there's always going to be the opportunity to do additional research and development to figure out how to make repair easier. Yeah, and you also have Dazuki, which is sort of the platform that you guys built. But from talking to you, I've known you two years now. It's never struck me that you're in this for the money or for the business to even succeed. You're in it to basically make repair easier because it's an important issue to you and it's an important environmental issue because every time a device is repaired, it's one that doesn't go into a landfill or a trash. Right. Can. Yes, this is a massive environmental crisis. We're just buying and consuming too many things. And I don't think that completely being a teetotaler and saying, no, we're not going to consume at all is the right approach. We have to find a way to be able to have a modern electronics industry that brings us all these wonderful products and make it environmentally sustainable. And the way that we do that is we just get better use out of all the things that we make. If we're going to make a cell phone, let's use it for five or ten years as a phone and then maybe use it longer as something else. Gay, can you tell us a little bit about your background? How did you get involved in this? Where did you come from? Why are you pushing for this? I was in the large mainframe business for a very long time. I don't want to give out my age, but into the 70s. And at the time, and I don't think that the technology's really changed all that much in terms of the way machines work. The technology to manufacture them has changed a great deal. But you could always fix a broken mainframe. It wasn't anything that you couldn't do. You know, if there was a connection that was busted, you fixed it. And people had very solid businesses that did repair. And they did repair without a lot of information, but without any information, it's impossible. So the entire aftermarket for used computers has been destroyed by changes in policy and not by technology. And that's the fight that we're having. It's literally a fight for the life of the aftermarket from my perspective. I don't have a repair business. I'm out of the leasing business. I'm basically doing this because I believe in it. And I think that's why Kyle and I have teamed up so well together because we're really In all honesty, if we were in it for the money, we're doing entirely the wrong thing. (laughs) It's interesting because I think I brought this up to you when we were hanging out in Albany talking to lawmakers. Um, You are sort of, you're a lobbyist now, more or less. I know you don't like being called that, but um, you are pushing for legislation in eight states now. And people tend to think of lobbyists and it's kind of like a bad word these days. But 
the way that I see it is there is one lobbyist for the right to repair and there is an army of lobbyists on the other side coming from companies like Apple and IBM and all these trade organizations that are trying to kill it. So you are not a lawyer, you are not a lobbyist, but you find yourself doing some lobbying now. So this is like one person pushing for legislation that will benefit tons of independent companies and tons of consumers. What does that feel like for you? I walk around needing tranquilizers every day (laughs) because it's a really, really intense experience. And I'm busy from the moment I get up to the moment I go to bed, just trying to juggle all of the things that are going on and all the questions that are being asked and try to deal with the people that are completely wrong and those that are completely right and just trying to keep all the balls in the air. It's it's <laughs> It's been uh, quite an experience and I had no idea what I was signing up for. But it's also been very rewarding and just so everybody understands what a lobbyist is, is they are registered with the state And they have to file reports, and we do too, when we hire a lobbyist. It's all supposed to be very transparent as to who's representing whom. I'm more of the legislative director for the association. As a lobbyist, I can hire lobbyists and I can be a resource, but there's limitations on what any of us can do without filing and and becoming a lobbyist. I know that's a little off the track here, but... No, no. I mean, it's interesting because I feel like you have had to learn a lot about how legislation works and how it's pushed through in different states and the sort of political jockeying that goes on. And I know just from hanging out with you that one day, I learned a lot more than I expected to. What is the legislation that you're pushing? Like, what specifically does it do to preserve fair repair or the right to repair? It's a total copy of the Massachusetts right to repair law. And the reason for that is it actually worked, and it was very reasonable, and it said automobiles in it. So the first thing we did is said, this is a great template, did a little wordsmithing, and turned the word automobile into digital electronic part or product. And that's actually worked really well as a template. So what we're trying to do is explain to people that the technology that's in cars that was making it impossible for an independent mechanic to be in the business of repair is exactly the same technology that's inside mainframes, it's inside of refrigerators, and all of the excuses in terms of preventing repair are exactly the same. So I find that I've been trying to explain to people their problems are not unique and that they really have a lot of commonality with all sorts of other repair-type businesses. And I really think electronics repair isn't one industry. I think it's a converged industry across multiple different kinds of products. Just to to be clear, the legislation would require manufacturers to sell replacement parts at the same price that they sell to their authorized dealers, to the general public and to independent repair companies. And it would also require them to give out the same diagnostic manuals that they give to authorized repair. Am I missing anything here? That's kind of the general thrust of it. Well, I call it a five-legged stool. Because you can, you can monopolize repair if you don't sell tools, if you don't sell diagnostics or allow them to be used, if you don't provide the firmware that's embedded in the equipment, which very often has to be backed up and restored, and very often there are um, security and safety patches that have to be applied. It, it, it's a functionality issue. It's, it's what makes the equipment work. And then, of course, you need the service documentation, particularly a schematic 
We get a lot of pushback on schematics as people assume that they are secrets when they are really not secrets. And then, of course, parts, because if you had all the other things and you can't buy a part, you still can't fix your equipment. So it's it's our five-legged stool. I want to go through maybe not all five parts of the legislation, but I do want to discuss the opposition to it. I think that basically everyone who is an independent repair person who has been following this closely knows the reason why manufacturers don't want to do this. And it's because they make a ton of money by locking down their equipment and then repairing it themselves or by charging people to join authorized repair programs. So uh, you will pay John Deere a fee to become an authorized John Deere tractor repair dealer, essentially. The most compelling argument from their business standpoint is they make a lot of money doing this, but that's probably not a very good argument to take to a lawmaker in Nebraska when you're Apple based in Cupertino saying we uh, you know we want to hamper independent repair companies in Nebraska so that we can preserve our repair monopoly that's not very effective so what do what do these companies say well none of them are going to say that they really basically just want to make a lot of money on repair <laughs> cuz that's that's as you said that's not a really good argument so they come up with a series of arguments we can almost predict the order that they're going to show up in the first is they're always going to say it's going to infringe on our proprietary rights well there's Copyrights, patents, and trade secrets. And we don't need any, there's no copyright infringement involved in repair. It's already legal under copyright law. There's a there's a, all sorts of citations that we can bring to that, but just suffice it to say, it is legal. It's legal under patent law to repair or purchase things. It's just not legal to go manufacture more of them. Um, and then trade secrets, we don't have any interest in trade secrets. It's not, it's not something that anybody needs to make a repair, be it an authorized party or an unauthorized party. Nobody needs a trade secret. So that's disclaimed in the bill. Uh, and then they, then they kind of go, um, 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 and go away. And then they come back with safety. Oh, my God, um, somebody's going to get hurt and it's going to be our fault. And they don't understand that when they sell the equipment, they sell it with a contract that says, hey, all the stuff you might do after you buy it, it's your problem. So they have all these disclaimers and limitations and indemnifications in the sale, and then they pretend that they want those back. So uh, that tends to fall apart as well. And ultimately, um, it comes down to what people understand to be the rights of an owner to control their property. And they shouldn't be blocked from repairing property. Otherwise, the whole accounting system falls apart. Nobody owns anything. Nobody should depreciate anything. Nobody should be taxed on these things as property. It really falls apart. And um, we haven't yet come up, we haven't yet seen an objection that's really held water um, on the big picture. Lots of silly things, like um, you might cut your finger on glass and um, that's been kind of a silly one. Or it's going to open up hacking. You know, Omaha, everybody, all the international hackers are going to move to Omaha. Um, another thing that I've seen, I don't know if the manufacturers have ever brought this up, but uh, one thing that I've seen from normal people is, just normal people on Twitter, is they argue that repairing a cell phone is too hard and too complicated. And so Apple should be the only one to 
be able to repair that. And that's also kind of the argument made in this Mashable op-ed the other day that got a bit of attention. Kyle, why is that wrongheaded? It's actually remarkably easy to repair these things. Uh, the iPhone is really designed to be very serviceable. So if we're going to talk about that product in particular, it's not a very good example. We've successfully helped millions of people fix their own iPhones. If you've never taken an iPhone apart, there's two screws on the bottom. You need a special screwdriver because I don't want you in there. But once you have that screwdriver, you just uh, two screws, and then you need a little suction cup like you'd have in the shower or something to lift the screen off. And you can get in and swap the battery. And most people can swap a battery in an iPhone, having never done it before in less than 20 minutes. It's very straightforward and easy to do. Some other products are harder to work on. Things like the, uh, repairing the iPad requires some heating tools to heat the adhesive and loosen it. And, and like repairing a Samsung Galaxy S7 is a little bit more challenging. It also requires some heating. But uh, in general, the, the, this idea that, that people can't do things themselves is crazy. And I fix it, and all of our happy users all around the world are evidence in encounter of that. It's pretty fun to see we've got somebody fixing you know, an iPhone, a uh, cracked iPhone for their kids, and uh, get back to them. And it's the greatest feeling in the world when you fix something yourself and it works at the end. Yeah, I feel like also that is not a legislative or legal argument it's too hard is not an argument i don't get that argument at all like if someone wants to try to do it and they screw up their phone then that's on them but that should not be persuasive to a lawmaker or to uh the copyright officer or to anyone it feels to me a little bit insulting i think they're saying our customers who pay this a lot of money are too dumb and they're not. People are incredibly smart. They're smarter than, than Apple's getting them credit for. They're very capable of doing it. And if somebody doesn't want to do a repair themselves, then there should be a local option. You should be able to go down to your local mall in Lincoln, Nebraska, and get your phone fixed. The guy I was sort of arguing on Twitter with, which is never a uh, fruitful thing to do, <laughs> he used to work for Apple, and he used to repair phones and said it was too hard to do. And something that has come up time and time again is that the best repair people do not work for Apple, and the best repair people do not work for John Deere's authorized repair companies and they don't necessarily they aren't authorized by the manufacturer they're doing repairs that manufacturers can't ever dream of doing or maybe they could but it's not profitable for them on scale to do so the day after I hung out with Gay I went to Rochester to hang out with Jessa Jones who's one of the world's best iPhone repair people and she does what's called board level repair. She puts the logic board underneath a microscope and micro solders all these tiny parts that Apple would never even bother to do. So I think that that's a very silly argument. Is it one that we have heard Apple or any other manufacturer tell lawmakers? I know you're not in many of those meetings, but you do obviously hear from the lawmakers that you work with, what sorts of arguments they are hearing from the other side's lobbyists. They're always going to say we're better, we invest heavily in training, and our technicians are dialed in, and they're the only right way to do it. You're always going to hear that. Uh, I put that in the category of fear, uncertainty, and doubt, or FUD. And it's, it's very easy for the manufacturer to stand up there and say, yes, we're the only ones that know how to do it. When we were arguing on the DMCA, we had lawyers from the Auto Alliance representing GM and Volkswagen and 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 all the other auto manufacturers telling us that the emission systems in vehicles were so sophisticated and complex that no one can work on them except the manufacturers. They're the only ones that really understand them. And this was before we found out that Volkswagen had been cheating in a big way. And it turned out that maybe there's a reason they didn't want anybody else to get into the emission systems. There are two aspects to right to repair. There's the federal aspect and then there's the state level aspect. And 
seems like this year we're very focused on passing legislation at a state level. What is the federal DMCA aspect of right to repair? I know that's something that you've been heavily involved in the last few years. Kyle. Sure, yeah. Let me give brief brief DMCA tutorial. Give, give the quick spiel. DMCA yeah. in a nutshell. Yeah. Okay. So the DMCA is a law that was passed in 1997, and it was designed to prevent DVD piracy. The Hollywood and the music uh, folks were terrified of what had been happening with VHS cassettes where people were taking them and copying them. They didn't want that to happen with digital devices. And so they encrypt DVDs. So they basically put a digital lock on the DVD to make it hard to copy. Uh, but they, they decided that it being hard to copy it wasn't good enough. They also wanted to make it illegal to copy it. Now, it's illegal to pirate things, but they actually wanted to make it illegal to break the lock. They wanted to make it illegal for, for software developers to build tools that broke those locks. And so Section 1201 of the DMCA says that it's illegal to circumvent a technological protection measure protecting a copyrighted work. That's a complicated way of saying that it's illegal to break a lock on DVDs. It's also illegal to, to uh, you know, pirate them or copy them. Uh, and so they, it's kind of a double jeopardy. They've got two different ways of getting you. Um, but it was designed to prevent people from, from making and distributing tools uh, to copy DVDs. So fast forward three years, and in 2001, a friend of ours, Sina Conifar, made a tool for unlocking Motorola Razor phones. So these are the flip phones. Jason, did you ever have one of these things? I did. Right? They were great phones. They kind of like ruled the world. This is the most popular phone out there. And you got it on Verizon, and you wanted to move it to AT&T, and you couldn't. Uh, so Sina made a tool to do that. And Motorola wasn't happy with it, and they went to the legal team, and they said, we got to find a way to stop this guy. And so they're, they're, I can imagine them reefing, you know, paging through the laws, looking for some way they can get him. And they found this technological lock business, and they were like, that doesn't just have to apply to DVDs. We can apply it to other products too. And so Motorola sued Cena for violating the DMCA for breaking a technological lock, protecting a copyrighted work. And in this case, the copyrighted work was actually the software that ran the baseband processor on the phone. So this is crazy because Cena never had any intent of pirating the baseband processor code. He just wanted to make a change to a device that he owned. Cena asked the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF, for help. And it turns out there's an escape hatch built into the DMCA where you can apply for exemptions every three years. Um, and so like specific narrow things where they're locks that society says it's okay if you break them. Uh, and so Cena and the EFF applied to the Copyright Office and actually got an exemption uh, for unlocking cell phones, which is awesome uh, and was really the first major uh, kind of crack or chink in the armor of the DMCA. I realize that since then this has become a hugely arduous process because you have to do it every three years and you have to do it for all sorts of things. Like I, I right. can only assume you, have, you and some lawyers, et cetera, have spent – like hundreds of hours writing yes. briefs and yes, arguments. I've lost track of how much time we've spent on it because the copyright office decided to interpret it very narrowly. So they said, "Well, hey, there's an exemption for unlocking cell phones, but that doesn't apply to tablets. So you have to apply for another exemption to unlock tablets, and that doesn't apply to jailbreaking phones. Jailbreaking phones is a different lock than unlocking phones, and so you have to apply for another exemption for jailbreaking phones, and then another exemption for jailbreaking tablets." And then another exemption for jailbreaking smartwatches, and you can see how this goes on for a while. Yeah. And every single one of these cases, we have to like assemble a legal team and fight it as if it's an entire lawsuit. So it gets very expensive, very complicated. Uh, the only way that we were able to fight it was that we had law students from a number of schools around the country, yeah, where they were uh, helping out from Stanford and USC and elsewhere, and they, they did it as part of their coursework. And they were phenomenal, and we were able to get a number of exemptions. 
the way it applies to repair is that over time, more and more products have locks on them. I mean, it's a more secure way to design things if you encrypt uh, the the software that's that's stored on the device. So Volkswagen is encrypting the computers and cars. And that means that if you want to get in and do a repair, let's say that you've installed an aftermarket door window and you need it to tie into the car computer, you have to break through the encryption in order to do that. And so at that point, you're circumventing a technological protection measure and you run afoul of the DMCA. So this law was written in an incredibly vague, broad way. And that's unfortunate. You couple that with the Copyright Office deciding that they're going to interpret every single type of hardware out there as a separate case. And door windows on cars are different than, you know, a different kind of lock on cars. And, and you run into a real problem. So to step back and say, well, what's the difference between this federal copyright problem and what we're talking about at the state level? At the federal level, it's really about the right to be able to make tools. Uh, is, is it okay for Cena to make a tool to unlock phones? Is it okay for me to make a tool to repair tractors? Um, it, it's kind of like the right to reverse engineer, the right to do security research, and the right to be able to build tools. Um, and that's fine, but it's also very complicated and arduous to go through the process of having to build tools for every single kind of thing. Um, and so that's where the state law comes in and it says, hey, we don't necessarily want to make a new tool for everything. If the manufacturers already have a tool, just sell it to us. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I think that segues pretty nicely because the thing that I want to talk about now is the software locks that are on iPhones and on a lot of other things. I think this is most infamous with iPhones on Air 53, which was an update to iOS that essentially bricked a lot of phones if they had independent repair. I'm a little hazy on the specifics because I kind of sat that one out, but Air 53 was a software lock that, in theory, we would like a software solution to. Right. Air 53 was an accidental byproduct of the touch sensor security. But basically, Apple issued a software update that tightened the calibration on a part and rendered a whole bunch of phones that had been repaired by the third party uh, folks. So if I fixed the my, my the screen in my phone and then I did the software update six months later, it bricked my phone and it was dead. Uh, and this is a big problem and we kind of made a big stink about it and Apple apologized and rolled back the software update and went back to the way that it was and unbricked all of these phones. Right. So this is a software lock that if passed, right to repair legislation would require Apple to sell or give out the means for unlocking that error. Well, it's not so much unlocking the error, it's recalibrating the phones. An example of a repair right now that we can't do is let's say that the touchscreen sensor in your phone breaks. We can't, I have new touchscreen, t- let's say that the uh, touch ID sensor on the button breaks. Uh, if I have a uh, aftermarket touch ID sensor, or even a touch ID sensor from another phone and I want to put it in your phone, I can't because there's no way of syncing that that fingerprint sensor to the phone. Uh, and and in order to do that, you just you need the uh, you need this Apple software to plug into the phone and tell it to pair with the new sensor. 
And that's kind of the same thing as you put a new lock in your door and you're going to key it to your existing key. That's something that all locksmiths can do. Uh, We need the ability to do that on phones. Right. So this is the argument that has gotten the most traction uh, among tech types. Like when this conversation comes up on Hacker News or Reddit or something, people say, why should Apple be required to make their devices less secure? Um, You know, and I think... I don't I don't agree with them, but I do think that there is at least a compelling argument there that that they're making in terms of they have been able to uh, prevent or at least in theory prevent uh, thefts because if you get your iPhone stolen, you can go into iCloud and brick it remotely, and then that phone is essentially useless. Um, there's there's no third in, there's no independent repair people who are able to take that iCloud activation lock off, as far as I know. Um, I think that maybe it's happened a couple times, but Apple has patched it. So in theory, if if this passes and, and anyone is able to you know, take an iCloud activation lock off, then if your phone is stolen, in theory, your data couldn't be stolen because uh, the phone would be reformatted and, and put back to factory settings. But that phone wouldn't be useless anymore. Is, is am I am I interpreting that correctly here? Yeah, and that's something that, that this law doesn't go as far as to be able to do that. So I, I don't think that this this law would um, enable people to bypass the activation lock. Okay, that's a cloud lock. The phone is tied directly to the cloud, and even Apple doesn't have software that can go in and you plug into the phone and disable the cloud activation lock. Um, so as long as that's not a tool that they're providing to their technicians, it's not a tool that they have to provide to anybody else. Um, and, and this has been the case, like, in, in Apple's case against the FBI, Apple said, hey, FBI, we can't actually unlock the phone. We don't have the technical capacity to do that. Uh, and I think that Apple was completely right in that situation. Uh, and it would be the same situation with us, where if somebody asked Apple for that tool, they'd say, hey, we don't have it, we don't make it available to our technicians, and that's as far as the law would go. Right, okay. And I wanted you to like spell that out, because Apple has, as Gay alluded to earlier, has gone to Nebraska and started say, telling the um, lawmakers there that if this legislation passes, Omaha will become a quote, mecca for bad actors and said that, you know, it'd be this uh, hacker haven and, and cybersecurity nightmare. And to me, that that is the uh, it's kind of inconscionable for the company to go and lobby lawmakers and then decline to discuss the specifics of that with the public. Um, that That's kind of like I get very upset when Apple is telling lawmakers one thing, but is not discussing the specifics of what it means. Like, so we're sort of left open to interpretation what a mecca for hackers would even mean, because as you said, there's no, there's nothing in the law that would make it easier to hack an iPhone. Right. Yeah, I think I think it's a completely preposterous claim. We hear this kind of thing. I mean, lawmakers get spun stories by lobbyists. They come in and they say the sky is falling. Uh, Apple told Minnesota that they would shut down the state of Minnesota if right to repair passed. Uh, they say these completely ludicrous things, and I, mean, I feel like sometimes it's like it's like listening to Trump. You don't know what to believe. Uh, it's it's just what what they're saying what they think is going to get an emotional reaction to maybe get the lawmaker to pull back a little bit. 
Um, but when you actually analyze it and say, is there any possible way that this is going to increase hacking? I, I don't think so. Okay. How have your conversations with lawmakers gone? Is this something that they tend to get right away? Oh, yeah. They definitely get the, hey, it's my car. It's my phone. It's my refrigerator. It's my my business, my livelihood. They get that part of it very readily, and then they get nervous. They start saying, well, if we need a law for this, what am I missing? Who's going to get hurt? And they start going through a period of introspection, and they start listening to lobbyists, and then then it becomes um, really difficult because we have to undo all the damage done by things like the sky is falling and it will be a mecca for hackers and just try to go back to the basics and say, look, you bought it, it's yours. They're telling you you can't do things with it that you should be able to do as the equipment owner. This is what's blocking you from doing it. You've signed this ridiculous agreement called an end-user license agreement that says you can't even open up the back of your equipment to gaze at it, and that's not copyright infringement. So, you know, let's work on the contract side. They basically, and I'm sorry for rambling around so much, but... It's really, at the state level, it's about contracts. Um, The federal level, it's about copyright and tools and DMCA. But at the state level, it's just about contracts. And consumers can be protected under state law from unfair and deceptive business practices, which is where most of these EULA um, do the most damage. Right. So I'm sorry to just be so rambling about this, but it really is – two different kinds of um, issues, but one can only be done federally, and that's the copyright issues, uh, particularly the, uh, the Section 1201 problems. And then at the state, it can uh, the states can't deal with anything federal. They are limited to what they can do, and they can only work on the contracts. Right. And so uh, I wanted to do this conversation now because on March 9th, there is a hearing in Nebraska for that state's law. And then uh, there's legislation moving through seven other states, I believe. So it's New York, Massachusetts, Kansas, Wyoming, Tennessee, Minnesota, Nebraska. I, I almost got Illinois. Home. Illinois. Okay, and Illinois. Um, so are, are you guys optimistic that you will be able to get one of these through? Like, what what does it look like right now from your guys' end? I think we have a great opportunity to get a bill through in the four most experienced states. And in addition to Nebraska, that would be New York, Massachusetts, and Minnesota. Um, They've been, they've heard enough about the bill and they've argued about it for two years now. And I think the level of education is good enough that these kind of silly claims and these silly ideas are going to be dismissed. And we can get out of committee and get a real floor, get things in front of legislators as a whole to get a floor vote. What can uh, the average user do to support your guys' uh, mission? It's, it's getting the word out, uh, letting people know. I mean, if, if you talk to people, people know uh, that everybody's in support. This is not a case of right versus left or uh, of, a, of a fringe uh, interest group pushing one thing. This is like everybody in the world wants to be able to fix their stuff, and there's only a couple organizations that don't. Uh, when when this came up in Massachusetts, people actually got the chance to vote on it, and 87% of the state voted in favor of right to repair. Uh, this is purely common sense. Everybody is on board with this except Apple, and it's very transparent why they're against it, uh, because they make so much money on screen repairs, and they'd like a monopoly. So uh, this isn't a challenge at all um, uh, from a policy perspective. It's just uh, effectively uh, getting it getting it you know on the ground, getting it done. You know, We basically have... 
minimal funding on on our side, and every time we go into a state, Apple hires the best lobbyists in the state to kill it, uh, and it's very easy to to kill legislation. So the only way that we're going to be able to counter that is if, if people are active, if they talk to the, their legislators, and if 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 uh, we you know kind of keep keep the the spotlight on the issue. When we were in Houston at, at, a, at a conference a couple months back. You talked about this and sort of struck a, the clock is ticking sort of tone here. This needs to get passed in the next year or two because there are concerns that Apple will redesign the iPhone to implement the Touch ID sensor into the glass. Why is that important and what, what would that mean for both repair shops and consumers? Well, if they integrate a component that has cryptography on it into a critical repair failure component, then we're going to have a problem. Uh, So I mentioned that we can't do repairs on the Touch ID sensor right now. That's not a huge problem yet because the Touch ID sensor doesn't break very often. Uh, And so there's relatively few people that are inconvenienced. Where if you look at glass on these phones, it's breaking, I mean... A substantial portion of people that have ever bought a smartphone have broken the glass on these things. Uh, it's a very common repair. Uh, doing that those those repairs is a, a really important part of the economy now. You've got fifteen thousand repair shops across the country that are that are fixing these things. Uh, and if there's a cryptographic element to repairing the glass, then our ability to do uh, glass repairs could completely go go away. If you are in support of this bill, I would recommend that if you live in one of those eight states, you should call your state legislator and support it. Um, tell them that you know you support the right to repair. And if you're not in one of those eight states, um, I'm not sure if it's too late to you know push your representative to introduce new legislation. It, it may be a, a, a bit late, but I don't think it is. Uh, and that's, I mean, a lot of states have their have their legislative cycle that goes year round. I think it would be worth if you're if you're interested or you're passionate about this issue, like just uh, schedule a meeting, like call your rep and say, hey, can I come and, and talk with with one of your staff or with you and talk about it and just educate them. They're interested in being educated. Uh, it'll put it on their radar. Maybe they'll introduce it. Uh, if nothing else, they'll know more about it. Um, and then if you are in one of the eight states, we, we built a pretty nifty tool. So you can go to nebraska.repair.org or newyork.repair.org and, and see – you can punch in your phone number and your zip code and we will figure out who your representatives are, call your phone, and then connect you to each of your representatives in turn. So you don't have to ha- even have to look up their phone numbers. Yeah, so do what Kyle said. That That is much easier than, uh, than looking it up yourself. Thank you guys both so much for talking. Um, I'm sure we're going to talk much more as, this, uh, as these bills move through their various state houses, but I just wanted to do sort of a curtain raiser explaining what the issue is and the state of the legislation. So thanks for making time, and uh, we'll hear from you soon, I'm sure. Awesome. Hey, this was a lot of fun. Thanks, Jason. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Radio Motherboard. As promised, here is a three-minute preview of Plus Plus Podcast, which, again, you can find on iTunes and any podcast app, Plus Plus Podcast, all spelled out. We're very, very excited about it. We've been working super hard on it. And, yeah, we have awesome album art as well. So if you subscribe, it'll be in your podcast folder, and it'll look cool, and you can show people these eyes and pyramids and this creepy computer with a hand coming out of it. So check it out, Plus Plus Podcast. Also, tell your friends about Radio Motherboard, of course, and uh, we will continue to have episodes of both of these shows, hopefully on a weekly basis. Thanks. I'm Jason Kebler. We were edited by Tim Barnes, and we will see you next week.
Hey, Loyal Motherboard fans, this is Jason Kebler. You might know my voice from Radio Motherboard. And I'm Ankita Rao. I'm an editor here at Motherboard. And today we're very proud to give you a short preview of a new podcast we've got called Plus Plus Podcast. That's plus plus, all one word. So how is this any different from Radio Motherboard? This is the first podcast that takes us out of the studio and on the road. And in these first few episodes, we send our staff to Canada, India, and Texas to tell you about the people and the machines that are shaping the future. Wow, Texas. Who went there? I have no idea. It was me. The bravest one (laughs) of us all. (laughs) Our first episode is launching on Friday. Our Canadian reporter Jordan Pearson tells us about the mysterious death of hacker Sam Maloney. How did a quiet talented computer programmer who was going back to school as a mature student end up dead. When the first shot hit him, it hit him in the chest, and then they shot him in the face. Why would they shoot him in the face after he's already on the floor in a sitting position? Does that even make sense? He's, he's sitting on the floor in a sitting position looking as if he's dead or out of it, right? And yet they shot him in the face. What, that sounds like an execution to me. Motherboard Features Editor Brian Anderson learns what's holding back smart gun technology from making our guns safer. Do you sell any smart guns in this shop? There is no such thing as a smart gun. If there is a device of any kind that would be put onto a firearm in the defense of your life and it fails, then there is no use to have that device. It just will not work. So there's nothing that they can do with smart gun technology that would convince me that it would be good. I went to an electronics recycling center in Dallas, Texas, to learn what happens with our old televisions. This is 380 pounds, or 300, sorry, 340 pound TV. Uh, one of the things that I, why I'm interested in this is people don't think about what happens to their old things. Is it a dangerous job? It seems like it might be. If you don't dismantle that CRT tube the right way and hit that yoke the right way, it can explode. I traveled to garment factories in India to find out if automation could actually work here. How many uh, garments are produced here every day? 950? 950? No, no, per day, total 4,500. Oh my God. 4,000 to 5,000 pieces per day we are switching, yeah. And I got a behind-the-scenes look at the group that's lobbying for the right to repair. When we get in front of legislators now, we say, it doesn't matter what it is. If it has a chip in it, it's a problem. Uh, so it doesn't matter if it's a baby monitor or refrigerator, a cell phone, or a tractor. It's the chip that is giving manufacturers an intrusion into your property rights. Ankita, do you like a new song? I love our new song. I can't stop singing it. It's by a Canadian artist named Paul Chin. Thank you so much, Paul, for making it. I love it, too. And yes, this is a preview of Plus Plus Podcast. It's going to be coming out this Friday, the first episode with Sam Maloney and Jordan Pearson. It's Plus Plus Podcast, all spelled out and one word. You can find it on iTunes and any other podcast app. Anything else? No, that's it. See you in the future. See you in the future. (laughs) Very good.